the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney. And I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And because I'm a glutton for punishment, in addition to my JD, I also hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the laws of taxation, as well as a master of the laws of intellectual property. And because of my education, my training, my experiences, and my life's observation, as well as my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth, including the knowledge of these subjects, the transfer within the families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. And I also practice some related fields, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference point as they relate to personal, familial, community, and small business finance, I've spent the greater part of the last 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people in communities of color, including indigenous communities. And as I've shared with you before, because I grew up as a military brat, my dad was airborne and I spent quite a bit of time on Fort Bragg as a little girl. And because one of, you know, I I basically married um, uh, a military person and created a new generation of military uh, brats with him, I know firsthand just how hard it can be economically to that is to say for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines, and there's families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economy, especially after they separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And because of my ingrown respect for our elders, both because I spent a great amount of time with both my grandmothers And these women survived the four great economic challenges of the 20th century for black women. That is to say, they were uh, survivors of the Great Depression and World War II and the systemic racism and misogyny that they had to survive and thrive through 
and that goes on even through today, these women help raise me. So out of my great love and great respect for them, when the situation is right, I'm sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors who find themselves the targets of, and unfortunately more and more the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of financial elder abuse that you could ever imagine that's running rampant in our society today. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that is tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I believe you need if you have a legal issue that intersects with your finances or your assets and your debts. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more importantly, probably these days, the lack thereof and your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate your family or your family's businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational form. And, you know, in as much as I am both a practicing attorney and a recovering former military spouse and a former Department of Defense civilian on my own right, as well as a recovering former data and telecommunications transmission systems engineer who helped design and implement some systems that were used by the Navy, I have and will continue to use this platform to bring important news and information and analysis about the intersections of the law and its military implications. And things that I believe that might be helpful to you who listen to this show and have reached out to me, some of whom are active duty and retired members of the military service. And I greatly respect you men and women because I know you care about and respect what's going on in the world. And you are God-fearing members of our armed forces who stand by diligently watching such that you are there to protect our freedoms from those who would like to see us cowed and afraid. So it's in this last capacity as an imperfect person of faith and a legal practitioner or researcher and sometimes legal scholar, but more importantly, a patriot that I feel the need to discuss what's going on, not only in the towns and villages and cities, large and small across America, but also around the world. I am, of course, talking about what's going on in Ukraine and how it might implicate our country taking a greater role in the world stage to help curtail some of the acts of some aggressors engaged in the leadership of countries that we shall not name, lest we wake up one morning and find some of the acts that we're watching on the television, including genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and crimes of aggression that we discussed last week, 
find these acts are taking place right outside our front windows and not halfway around the world. So that's what we're going to do today, start a discussion about some of the organizations that provide a defensive shield against powers that do not respect the sovereignty of nations, nor the rights of their people, or how our universal need for peace and freedom of choice as the foundation for prosperity that is gained by freedom of expression, freedom of association, and the right to use our own capital and ingenuity to form businesses and family units, and our God-given right to express our religions, including our right to not have a religion at all, and not be attacked or condemned by those in power, foreign or domestic. So let's start with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, also known as NATO. Now, according to an article published by the Brennan Center for Justice on March 4th, 2022, entitled NATO's Article 5 Collective Defense Obligation Explained, here's how a conflict in Europe would implicate U.S. defense obligations. And this article can be found at www.brennancenter.org forward slash r dash work forward slash research forward slash report forward slash NATO's Article 5 Collective Defense Obligations Explained. Now, according to the Brennan Center, NATO is an alliance of 30 European and North American countries, including the United States. Its foundational document is the North Atlantic Treaty, which sets forth NATO's purpose and obligation, ensuring peace, and I say that, it's a military organization, but its primary focus is peace and security through collective defense. Now, NATO was formed shortly after the end of World War II at the dawn of the Cold War. The organization's collective defense obligations, as detailed in Article 5, have been invoked, have been invoked only one time. And that was on behalf of the United States after 9-11. Now, Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine has sparked concern that he who shall not be named may expand the scope of that conflict onto NATO members like Poland and Lithuania, triggering NATO's collective defense obligations. Now, many in the public are now asking what NATO's collective defense obligations mean for the United States. So when we come back, we'll take a deeper dive into the workings of NATO and the role of America and the world if we get drawn into a conflict that's taking place in Ukraine. But first, we'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law. As we continue our 
deeper dive into the workings of the NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and the role America has in the world in case it is drawn or NATO is drawn into the conflict that is taking place in Ukraine. Now, again, my primary source material for today's discussion is an article published by the Brennan Center for Justice, and it was published on March 4, 2022, entitled NATO's Article 5 Collective Defense Obligations Explained. And it goes on to say, here's how a conflict in Europe would implicate U.S. defense obligations. And again, it can be found at, why don't you just go uh, Google the Brennan Center org and then just Google NATO and it should pop right up. So let's get back to our overview of NATO. Now, what are NATO's members' collective defense obligations? Again, according to this article and actually the actual article that itself, um, that is to say Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, states the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them shall be considered an attack against them all and consequently they agree that if such an armed attack occurs each of them in exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defense recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations will assist the party or party so attacked by taking such actions as deemed necessary, including the use of armed force to restore, restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic area. Now, this language is relatively flexible. It permits each NATO member to decide for itself what action should be taken to address an armed attack on a NATO ally. It does not require any member to respond with military force, although it permits such responses as a matter of international law. A member may decide that instead of responding with force, it will send military equipment to NATO allies and impose sanctions on the aggressor. Now, stepping out of the article, that appears to be what the world wanted to do initially after he who shall not be named sent forces into Ukraine. But as we have been witnessing, we're still sending equipment and imposing sanctions but we're stepping up the quality and the quantity of military equipment that we're sending. Getting back to this article, if a NATO ally is attacked, would Article 5 authorize the president to send U.S. forces into the conflict? The answer is no. Even if a NATO ally is attacked and Article 5 is invoked, the president needs to obtain congressional authorization before sending the military into a conflict zone or otherwise using force. 
Now, Article 2 of the North Atlantic Treaty explains that its provisions shall be carried out by the parties in accordance with their respective constitutional processes. And in the United States, that means securing express authorization from Congress, which has the sole constitutional power to declare war and is responsible for military appropriations and oversight. Now, consider that treaties are made by the president with the consent of the Senate. If the invocation of a collective defense treaty automatically allowed the president to use force abroad, the House would be wholly excluded from the decision about where, when, and how this country goes to war. The Senate would play a role secondary to the president. Such a scheme would violate the Constitution's text and the design, which vests, and I quote, the whole power of war in Congress. And that's according to the foundational Supreme Court decision. Now, Congress endorsed this analysis in 1973, something, a document called the 1973 War Powers Resolution. That was when Vietnam was going on. That particular 1973 War Powers Resolution reaffirms the president's obligation to seek congressional authority before using offensive force. The War Powers Resolution states that congressional authority to use force shall be inferred from any treaty heretofore or hereafter ratified. Now, what about the president's inherent power as the commander-in-chief? Can't he just wake up one day and decide he wants to be John Wayne at the Alamo? The president's inherent powers as commander-in-chief would not allow the president to send the military into a conflict zone or otherwise use military force in response to the invocation of Article 5. The Constitution vests the president with the power to defend U.S. territories and citizens, even without express authority. So that's the difference. That's the rub. Someone attacks us, even he who shall not be named, the president has power to respond. But to go into an offensive posture requires um, the support of an express will expressed by Congress. Now, since the Cold War, executive branch lawyers have tried to broaden the scope of the president's inherent war powers. They have argued that the Constitution permits the president to defend not only U.S. territories and citizens, but also more abstract national interests, such as the credibility and effectiveness of the United Nations. As many experts have noticed, this open-ended national interest theory is constitutionally dubious. Still, executive branch lawyers concede that the president cannot unilaterally commit the military to a conflict of a substantial nature, scope, and duration, even if there's a strong national interest. Any military confrontation between Russia and NATO 
would surely be of substantial nature, scope, and duration, and would therefore require congressional authorization. This limitation on the president's inherent powers explains why President George W. Bush sought congressional authorization for the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war, large-scale conflicts involving ground forces. Next question posed by the Brennan Center is, what could Congress's response to an invocation of uh, Article 5 look like? Well, if Congress were to decide that military response is necessary, Congress would declare war or more likely adopt a limited authorization to use force. For years, experts and advocates have agreed that any authorization to use force specify the conflict's purpose and geographical scope, as well as identity of the enemy, and that it should include an expiration date. These limitations ensure that Congress reviews the authorization on a regular basis and understands where, why, and against whom U.S. forces are fighting. Now, the next question is, would waiting for Congress conflict with our obligation to aid our NATO allies? The answer is no. Our NATO allies understand that legislatures play an important role in determining what kind of support is necessary to respond to and the invocation of Article 5. After 9-11, NATO's governing bodies invoked Article 5 and called upon NATO allies to support the United States in response to the terrorist attacks. In turn, the leaders of NATO, like Germany, asked their respective legislatures for permission to deploy forces on our behalf. On November 16, 2001, the German Bundestag voted to commit 3,900 troops to fight in Afghanistan as a means of fulfilling its obligation under Article 5. Moreover, Congress can act quickly in response to national security development, and it would likely do so if any invocation of Article 5 uh, came into being. Another question is, what would happen if the president sent military forces abroad without securing congressional authorization? It states that if the president were to send military into the conflict zone without congressional authorization, Congress could invoke the War Powers Resolution. The War Powers Resolution provides that military forces operating without a declaration of war or specific statutory authority shall be removed by the president if Congress directs them to do so. Congress could also use its power over military appropriation to restrict the president's ability to continue a war. So this is just an overview of the need for us as a country to work collectively through our elected officials to make sure that if we are called into war by 
a NATO resolution that we do so with our eyes wide open and understanding that the cost that we might have to pay. And the, this is something that the people through their elected officials and all, and all the two branches that are involved must pay heed to. Okay, so we're going to leave it there for now. But as always, closing here at Selwyn's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including utilizing our collective national and unilateral um, powers of NATO to protect our rights as a free nation and those nations that care about freedom. So in the meantime, and in as much as it appears that some or all of the variants of COVID-19 will be with us for the foreseeable future, I once again ask you to please get vaccinated and and boost it. And even if you have all your shots, but especially if you don't, please take the necessary precautions to protect not only yourselves and your families, but those who you come in contact with, like me, by masking up, even if you don't have to, keeping your social distance and washing your hands. Till next time, take care and bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.